Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is a series where we are exploring topics related to autoimmune disease. The effort is to help our patients and their loved ones understand and manage their condition. Today we're going to be talking about multiple sclerosis, also known as MS, and we welcome Dr. Anna Felix, who is an expert neurologist in the Division of General Medicine. She sees patients at UNC who have MS and a variety of other neurological conditions. Welcome, Anna Felix. Thank you so much. So, Anna, what is multiple sclerosis? What does that word really mean? It strikes fear in everybody. You're right. It really does strike fear. Multiple sclerosis is a neurological disorder that is related to a dysfunction of the immune system that affects about 400,000 Americans. We don't know exactly why people develop MS, but we do know that the immune system is integrally involved in the development of the disease. And people with MS may never have symptoms after their first experience with symptoms or may progress to have significant disability. And those are the reasons that people fear the diagnosis. As in many other autoimmune diseases, there are individuals who do remarkably well, and it's almost as if the immune system manages to heal itself and the disease is limited in time. It's almost a one-shot disease. It happens and doesn't happen again, but yet many other patients have uh, relapsing and remitting disease and others a much more progressive course. That's right. So some patients will have what we call a clinically isolated syndrome, where they have one episode that may never recur again. Other patients will have repeated episodes, some of which will improve completely. Some will leave them with a little bit of neurological impairment. And over time, those patients may progress. And then there's about 10% of patients who develop a much more severe form of the disease, where from diagnosis, they progressively worsen over time. How do you predict, can you predict, for somebody with new-onset disease, if they're going to be the lucky group that have a one-shot, clinically isolated uh, disease process? That's a great question. We do not currently have a good way to predict which patients are going to progress and which will not. The rule of thumb is that about 20% of patients who have a single episode or clinically isolated syndrome may develop MS over time. And that data has led us to treat clinically isolated syndrome aggressively with the medications that we use to treat MS to prevent progression of clinically isolated syndrome into multiple sclerosis. There are then different forms of MS, or there might almost be under the rubric of the term multiple sclerosis. There are people who have milder disease. There are people who have relapsing disease and then progressive disease. Do the clinical symptoms, do what patients feel, are they different from these different scenarios or are they similar? That's another great question. Unfortunately, there's no way clinically to know which syndrome the patient will fit into. And a lot of times, this diagnosis of either clinically isolated syndrome, relapsing, remitting, or primary progressive disease is made retrospectively, looking at the patient and looking back on their history. 
the symptoms can be very much the same. For example, somebody may develop visual loss in one eye or what we call optic neuritis. And that can be a single episode, never recur again with complete improvement. It can be a single episode with some impairment, and then the patient develops other symptoms, typically involving other parts of the brain and the spinal cord. Or that can develop into other forms of MS and MS-like conditions that are progressive. There is this concept in MS that the disease is separated in time, different events over time, and in space, different parts of the body. Is that helpful in figuring out if somebody early on in the course of disease has MS? That is, in fact, how we define MS. So MS has always been defined by episodes of neurological dysfunction that involve different parts of the central nervous system. And then the patients have to have more than one episode. So a single episode does not equal MS. However, with the advent of MRI or magnetic resonance imaging, we now have the ability to look at patients' brains and spinal cords and assess whether they may have had a previous event that perhaps they didn't even realize they had. And so MRI helps us find the dissemination or the separate episodes over time. So somebody presenting with a new set of symptoms, for example, optic neuritis, who on MRI has evidence that they've had prior events um, in their brain, the diagnosis can then be made. Patients who have newly diagnosed disease uh, are concerned, of course, about all the nasty sorts of things that can occur. If you go on the web, you immediately jump to the progressive forms. You don't have as much discussion about um, less uh, concerning diagnosis. What questions do patients have of you? What are their early and most worrisome concerns? Most patients are concerned that they won't be able to work anymore, that they won't be able to walk anymore, that they may be blind or completely disabled. And for that reason, the diagnosis is very challenging. As we already mentioned, very few patients proceed to have that kind of devastation in the short term, while it is true that patients with relapsing remitting MS, if they have recurrent episodes, may not recover completely from each episode. And so over time, each time they have an episode of dysfunction, be it that they lost vision or perhaps they had some difficulty with walking or some numbness or some weakness, over time, if they don't recover completely, they may have cumulative dysfunction that impairs their ability to function. So patients fear that perhaps more than anything at all. Is that uh, concern uh, something that makes it so patients don't want to see a neurologist? In other words, don't want to be seen early. There are wonderful new drugs that help patients with MS. Uh, What are the blocks or the uh, barriers for patients wanting to be seen by neurologists? So as a neurologist, I find that most patients that I meet are eager to meet with me at that point in time. However, the journey towards a neurologist sometimes takes uh, various forms. And in addition to that, there are many people who have symptoms similar to the symptoms that one sees in MS, like numbness, like fatigue, who don't have MS. So neurologists spend a lot of time trying to tease out which of these patients truly have MS 
as opposed to which of the patients believe they may have MS when in fact there's no evidence that they have MS. So the barriers to seeking neurological care um, currently include some difficulty in the number of neurologists available to see patients quickly, um, and then the number of patients that have symptoms that may not be MS that take up a lot of time and a lot of assessment. So what you're suggesting is is that somebody who is worried about a neurological process, I have numbness, I have tingling, uh, there's a, I, I can't feel my toe as well as I used to, may have and probably has a completely different entity than multiple sclerosis. It's really, again, this process of having multiple episodes of different parts of the body that should clue a patient in who hasn't been seen that perhaps they need neurologic attention. Correct, and simple disorders like carpal tunnel syndrome, which may cause your hands to go numb, can be distinguished from multiple sclerosis that can also make your hands go numb, typically by a neurologist. The magnetic resonance image, or MRI, has been instrumental in helping neurology figure out whether somebody has prior white spots or all abnormalities in the central nervous system. Um, Are there problems with MRIs? Are there dangers of MRIs? MRI has been a very safe procedure for most patients. There are some barriers to getting an MRI. For example, patients who have metallic implants cannot go in an MRI machine. And CAT scans, which are the other alternative we have to MRI, are just not as good at detecting these white matter spots. In addition to that, MRI as an experience is very claustrophobic, and so it's very common for patients, even those who've never known themselves to be claustrophobic, to truly struggle in the machine. The test can take up to an hour, it makes loud noises, and can make people feel dizzy and just very uncomfortable. So sometimes we need to use sedation to help patients relax for the procedure. It's absolutely crucial during an MRI of the brain in particular and the spinal cord that patients lie absolutely still. And so you can imagine that lying absolutely still for an hour when you're terrified and feeling uncomfortable is not easy. Yeah, so sedation or an anxiety drug is really very, very useful. And perhaps listening to some music that you really enjoy is helpful as well. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult experience for some, and others sleep right through it and have no problems uh, at all. Fortunately, there are wonderful new drugs in the treatment of multiple sclerosis. Tell us about the treatment options. Yes, so the treatment options have truly expanded. So up till 1993, we had steroids, and we still use steroids. So we sort of separate the treatment of MS into how do we treat the patient who comes in with brand new symptoms. We, use, we still use steroids. But in 1993, a new group of drugs called interferons became available for patients. And those were available until 2010. So between 93 and 2010, we were essentially stuck with these injectable forms of medication that make people feel like they have a flu-like illness and are pretty uncomfortable, but are still truly the mainstay of the drugs that we use in MS, along with another injectable form called glutarama acetate, which is not an interferon, but falls in that category of the basic drugs we use. And then in 2010, the first pill became available to treat MS called fingolimod. And since then, we've had 
a bit of an explosion of available opportunities for treatment, both with pills, but also with injectables. And this includes injections patients can give themselves, as well as injections that we give in the clinic called infusions. And patients typically will receive that at different points in time, depending on which medication they're receiving. In general, though, those drugs are aimed at uh, altering uh, component parts of the immune system uh, as an advantage over an era where prednisone or other corticosteroids or steroids, as you mentioned, broadly uh, are anti-inflammatory drugs that inhibit multiple component parts of the immune system and have a much higher risk of of side effects. That's right. And so we typically do not use steroids long-term. They're truly just used for the acute episodes. It's not clear that they help patients over the long-term, but they do seem to help patients recover faster from their episode. And so we still use those. They typically are infusions that we administer over three to five days. And then the patient continues with the medication that they take on a more regular basis. Um, The side effects of the medications, the newer medications in particular that we have, have also presented challenges. So none of these medications are without their challenges, but it does allow us a greater armamentarium of medications to offer patients, depending on whether they're mostly concerned about safety, whether they're mostly concerned about convenience, or whether they're mostly concerned about efficacy of the treatment. And each patient's treatment is somewhat adjusted to their individual needs. So the patient is in the driver's seat to a certain extent in helping figure out what kind of medication works best for them in intervals that seem to keep them in remission. You're right. In fact, this is one of the conditions where patient-centeredness is crucial to treating patients. So the doctor and the patient and the team and the patient become a unit that together move forward to prevent the patient from having disability over time. And one of the objectives of meeting with a patient is turning the patient into an expert on their disease and the treatments that are available to them so that they can be empowered to make decisions that are appropriate for themselves. So the business of empowering patients to help in the treatment approach and even what kind of treatment is critically important because if a drug is not working well, it really is incumbent upon the patient to say, hey, wait a minute, doc, you have me on this drug. It's supposed to help. It's not helping me. As a matter of fact, it's making me feel ill help, what's the next step? That's a great question. So patients do have to be empowered, but in addition, neurologists have to see these patients on a fairly regular basis. One way that patients know the treatment isn't working is that they just feel bad or they have ongoing episodes of neurological dysfunction. Another way is that we typically will repeat the MRI once a year, at least early on in the treatment, because as we talked about earlier, you may have abnormalities on an MRI with no symptoms whatsoever. If the patient is not getting the benefit of the treatment, then we have to explore these other options. So for example, if they're taking interferon, which is very convenient, they take it once a week and they've managed their side effects very well and they can function beautifully and they have more disease, that could be because the drug's not working or they've developed antibodies, then we talk about oral agents or some of the other infusion available drugs. And there are novel therapies that are coming up even as we speak that are being evaluated by the FDA. And so I anticipate that in the coming years we'll have even more options. 
as in other autoimmune diseases, the concept that a drug that may have been working for a while stopping working is not unexpected. Is that right? I mean, that's exactly right. And we don't always know why. With the interferons, there are antibodies that we can sometimes measure that tell us that the patient has become essentially immune to that treatment and other options have to be looked at. The beauty of the treatment for MS and having all these different options is that each treatment attacks the immune system dysfunction at a different level. And so as more drugs have become available for other immune diseases, we have also borrowed them sometimes, particularly for patients with very severe forms of MS where the drugs we have available don't work. We do reserve those drugs for very severe cases, but the good news is we have a much larger toolbox than we've ever had before. Lots of vines in the therapeutic jungle. Can one start using the word cure of multiple sclerosis, or are you really aiming for remission on therapy? That's a great question. We do not have a cure. We are looking at remission, and remission defined as the patient not having any more symptoms or new exacerbations, as we call them, in addition to no MRI evidence for progression of disease. Uh, And those are equally important because patients may not have symptoms, and yet they're MRI may show that there are areas that are having ongoing demyelination or active disease. If the MRI shows stability, if the patient feels well, do you stop therapy? Ah, great question. Currently, we don't stop therapy, and that's probably the hardest thing for patients. Uh, So young women who have been on injectables that they've been taking every day for years who feel great and have never had another episode and they're five years in and they've got young children and they have their lives, the fact that they have to continue taking the medicine every day as an injection is very challenging. And that has been addressed by modifying the types of injectables we have, making them be able to be around longer so you can give yourself the injection fewer times, but it still prevents a big challenge. And I will add that an oral agent is no different. The fact that you have to take a pill every day when you feel no worse is very hard to continue. And there are risks associated with all these medicines, so it's a risk-benefit ratio. How do you talk to patients and say the benefit of staying on a drug, even though you feel great, you're doing well, is worth the risk? That's such a good question. That is really, truly one of the ways that we have to develop relationships with patients, where we have to have an ongoing conversation, and the patient has to become an expert in understanding their disease. Because MS, over time, if untreated or if patients have another relapse, may have devastating consequences. Uh, The brain and the central nervous system, the term we use to describe the brain and nervous system is that it's all about terrain, and it's all—it's like real estate. So if you have a very small abnormality in a very crucial part of your brain or central nervous system, spinal cord, you may be completely devastated. So the idea that even one episode can leave you with significant disability is the conversation we have that balances out the risks of the medication. An area of research that's occurring in other kinds of autoimmune diseases are biomarkers for relapse and even biomarkers for remission, because if you had a biomarker for remission, I know I'm in remission because a biomarker really proves that it is, that would permit the cessation or stopping of medication. 
those biomarkers in MS, where is the research at this time? That research is ongoing. It's not been as exciting as we'd hoped. The results have not been as great as we'd like, but it's coming. And I will add that as we've learned so much more about other autoimmune diseases, that has impacted the research in MS. And so we have a greater toolkit, again, in the research arena to help us understand both what causes MS, because we don't quite know what triggers that initial episode, but also how we might impact it such that we have a marker to tell us whether the patient will either have another relapse or not, or whether they will be the kind of patient who will develop progressive disease or not. Patients always ask me the following three questions. Uh, What caused my disease? What will make it go away? And what will prevent it from coming back? How do you answer those questions for somebody with MS? That is a very difficult question for most neurological diseases because the truth is we don't know the the answer to all of those. What I typically tell patients is that they didn't do it to themselves. So there's nothing that they did or their family did or there was nothing that they could have done to prevent it. And uh, try and share as much information as I can with them so that they understand that and understand that we walk the journey with the patient we, when we cannot cure, we can still be at their side. We believe when they call us and tell us they're feeling worse. We change treatment accordingly. We offer the most cutting-edge options that the patient has access to, and we are an advocate for the patient. And that is a little different to the original goals, which would ideally be never make it come back again. That concept that patients didn't cause the disease themselves and that you don't know what makes the disease come and go is a really critical message. If you did know what caused the disease to relapse and remit, then in fact, uh, modern medicine would have figured out a medicine or a tool to prevent relapses and remission. If we could answer those critical questions, we'd have solved a lot of these diseases. And the other important point that you've made is uh, the patients do best if if the patient and the physician share the same degree of neurosis, that uh, there really is the need for an interaction on a regular basis by a patient and and their provider so that uh, concerns of, am I doing okay? Am I having a problem with the medicine? Am I disease changing? Have to rely on this constant communication. That's right. It's truly a long-term relationship between the physician typically a neurologist and the patient. And uh, it's probably one of the more rewarding components of being a neurologist because you get to know patients so well and you know when they're not feeling good. There are things, however, that will empower patients to feel better and that are known to make patients feel worse. And those include stress, for example, and exercise and tobacco use. And so those are not new to MS or unique to MS. But if the patient is struggling with uh, habits that may be causing them harm, we have opportunities to at least help them overcome those if they choose to. Um, So they're just as important as if you were talking to the patient about heart disease. Where would you suggest patients turn on the web for uh, trusted uh, and uh, real information about their disease? 
The National MS Society has a wonderful website and has been an extremely important partner in collectively being an advocate for patients and what they need and communicating all research updates in a very effective way, both with patients but also to physicians. So the National MS Society is an excellent uh, website that has information for patients about treatments, current treatments, about alternative and complementary treatments, about where to find an MS expert in their region, and if they're relocating, how to find a new neurologist. All of those can be found with just a click on their website. Thank you, Dr. Felix, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to the Chairs Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much.